that music that you just heard, listeners, you should be really grateful that you only heard it once because Dominic and I hosted an event over the weekend at the European Parliament and something went wrong as people were coming in. So more than a thousand people heard that 20 seconds of music on a loop over and over again, including the sheep noise. Maybe, how many times was it? 50 times? Yeah. Before someone could work out how to stop it? It it was driving us a bit mad. We were like, oh no, someone make it stop. And somehow they couldn't get it to stop. It wasn't the best start, was it? It wasn't, but it has been an amazing few days. We had quite a weekend, didn't we? We did, yeah. Uh, We were hosting this boot camp for young activists from around Europe. It it was called Level Up. And uh, we met loads of amazing people. And we also got to hang out together in person for three days. And we managed not to kill each other. We did Korean sheep face masks. We did. For the first time. Um, Actually, we had quite a lot of firsts. We also used an automated pancake machine for the first time, which was pretty amazing. Check out our Instagram for that. We had our first fight. (laughs) Did we? Dominic is very selfish with his nuts, listeners. He does not want to share his nuts. That is so not true. I offered them to you and you said you weren't hungry. So then I just ate them in front of you because you said you weren't hungry. I think we should resolve this one off mic. It is amazing how different people are online to how they are in person. Katie is like one of the most organized people I know online. And she's (laughs) so good at preparing for our meetings, um, like really organized when we're recording this show. But in real life, I don't know how to say this, but you're kind of charmingly scatty. And I'd forgotten that. I've left a trail of devastation behind me in the European Parliament. I left my phone somewhere. The whole building is full of like notes and scripts that I've just left scattered all over the building. What am I like? On the second day, we went back into the main chamber of the European Parliament, the hemicycle, and I was walking past the chair for the president, like where the president sits in the parliament, and I just saw a pile of Katie's notes there that she'd left the day before. Thankfully, it seemed no one had read them. What can I say? I made myself comfortable. Anyway, it was it was a great couple of days. And you're going to be hearing a bit more about that later on the show as well as hearing a bit of our conversation with President Roberta Metzola, President of the European Parliament. But first, it's time, as usual, to find out who has had a good week in Europe and who has had a bad week. Who has had a good week, Katie? It has been a good week for people who want to smoke weed in Germany uh, because the government has just revealed details of how it is planning to legalise cannabis, which would make it one of the very few countries in Europe to have properly legal cannabis. Uh, This is not new, new. When Germany's coalition government came together late last year, the legalisation of cannabis was revealed back then as being on their to-do list. Uh, But what happened last week is that we actually got details of how the German government is planning to do it. How would the cannabis market work? How much weed would you be allowed? Uh, And so on. And how much weed would you be allowed? Uh, 30 grams per person at any one time which is about an ounce for those of you who grew up with imperial measures of cannabis. Uh, You'd also be allowed to grow up to three plants at home if you are a green-fingered person. And how would the market work? Uh, Are they going to like allow people to manufacture it on like a large scale? Because that's not actually allowed in the Netherlands, even though it's apparently the marijuana capital of Europe. Yeah. Funnily enough, the German health minister, Karl Lauterbach, he was quite rude about your cannabis market when he was announcing all of this. 
He said, what we have learned from the Dutch experience is that we don't want to do it that way. Uh, He said the Dutch way of doing it had resulted in liberal use of cannabis, but not a controlled market, which is kind of difficult to argue with. Um, A lot of foreigners think that cannabis is legal in the Netherlands, but that isn't actually true, is it? No, there's a policy of toleration, I think is the official term. It's not strictly legal. And the Dutch government do outline clearly like what is tolerated and what isn't. So even if it's not legal, it's still allowed. But on the growing side, like that's not legal, right? So that side of the market is dominated by like organized crime. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is a bit mad. It's not very well designed, the policy around marijuana here. So yeah, maybe Germany will show us how to do it. Maybe. Um, So yeah, they're definitely not seeking to copy the Dutch system. The shops selling the weed will be able to get their supplies from legal growers. And the plan is to have the weed grown in Germany, thereby creating opportunities for a new industry to be created. And uh, in general, the government does seem keen to make money out of this. Uh, There was a study last year that suggested that if Germany legalized cannabis and taxed it, Altogether, it could bring in about 5 billion euros extra a year if you also take into account the money saved on policing cannabis offences. And then there's all the jobs that would be created, as many as 27,000 jobs, according to the study by the Dusseldorf Institute for Competition Economics, not just in growing cannabis, but on the retail side, because people would be buying the weed in licensed shops and uh, possibly also pharmacies. Um, but how much money is the German economy going to lose on uh, lost efficiency because everyone's so much more <laughs> chilled out and sleepy from the weed? Maybe it would be a good idea for Germans to be chilled out. I shouldn't make such uh, sweeping generalizations, but there was, did you see that viral Twitter thread this week about how how rude Germans are to people that they don't know in public? No, I didn't. Maybe I'll post it. It was entertaining and interesting to read as a non-German. And maybe people be more efficient if they're relaxed. We've done interviews on this podcast about how German efficiency is kind of a myth anyway. We'll see. We will see. Um, Anyway, it doesn't look like they are going to legalize edibles in Germany like they have done in some US states. So probably no legal hash brownies. And those little sweeties that you can buy in California that have all of these nice flavors like pink lemonade. And then it turns out that they contain these really very potent doses of weed, which is absolutely mind blowing for foreigners like me, by the way. I found it really very strange to see these things for sale in California over the summer. Um, Those kinds of products are probably not going to be available in Germany. So you said that Germany is going to be one of the very few countries where cannabis is actually legal. Where else is it legal at the moment? Uh, Well, there are a growing number of countries where medicinal use of cannabis is allowed, because even though there is still a very fierce debate over whether cannabis is better or worse for people and for society than drugs that are more socially acceptable, like alcohol or tobacco, there is growing evidence that cannabis is helpful for treating conditions like chronic pain. Um, So Germany itself has allowed cannabis for medicinal use since 2017. Quite a lot of other countries also do that, like Italy and Portugal. Some countries have stopped short of legalizing weed, but have decriminalized possession, like Switzerland. And in Luxembourg, there's this bill going through the parliament, which would legalize cannabis use at home, but not in public. Uh, And even in France, where I live, you know, we've historically had some of the strictest criminal penalties for cannabis possession in Europe. And it clearly doesn't lead to people not smoking it. You know, we've also historically had some of the highest rates of weed smoking on the continent. Mm. But even here, it's it's been loosening up in recent years because there's a sense that if the goal of the strict policy is to stop young people smoking weed, 
that policy isn't working. Uh, so even here, they've made it less strict. Since 2020, if you're caught with a small amount, you'll just get a, a 200 euro fine on the spot. And there's also been a trial with medical cannabis here in France. But there is only one EU country so far that has legalized recreational marijuana, and that is Malta. Another issue where Malta is surprisingly liberal when it isn't on others. Uh, I'm thinking of one issue in particular, which is abortion. So how quickly is this going to happen? When is Germany going to join Malta and become the land of the marijuana? <laughs> the land of the marijuana? Uh, probably not for a while. And that is because the government is waiting to get the green light from the EU before moving forward, which might sound strange because I would instinctively think, oh, this is kind of a health policy. That's a national issue. And But of course, this isn't just a health policy. Cannabis is still an illegal product in most European countries. So it's a security issue. And in fact, the Schengen Agreement specifically says countries that are part of Schengen have to stop the illegal export of drugs. So if cannabis becomes legal in Germany, that might create problems in terms of people going there, buying weed, and then crossing borders to other European countries where weed isn't legal. So the German government is trying to get the green light from Brussels before doing this so that it doesn't pass this law and then end up in the European Court of Justice because Brussels says it breaks some EU law or treaty. Uh, And then if it does get the go-ahead, Lauterbach, the health minister, said that legal cannabis could be a reality in Germany by 2024. So watch this space. Cool. Who has had a bad week? Well, we're heading to Poland for bad week. It's been a bad week for the public transport authorities in the city of Katowice after a tram worth 7 million zloty, that's about 1.5 million euros, went missing for a while. (laughs) I have so many questions. And hopefully I will answer them. Um, Yeah, basically a tram was taken for a ride by a 25-year-old man. How does one go about stealing a tram? Well, apparently it wasn't that difficult and wasn't even that dramatic. He did do it at night. But he just went into the tram depot of ZTM, which is a public transport company, and saw that there was an empty tram on the tracks, stepped in and started driving around the Katowice urban area. (laughs) For some reason, the gate was open and security didn't react. And and was it like a working tram? Did he pick up passengers along the way? Yes, that's what I love about this story. Apparently he did. (laughs) Um, He had changed the number of the tram to number 33, which is a tram line that doesn't exist in Katowice. But it seems like the passengers didn't notice this, nor did they notice the fact that he wasn't an official driver, as he was just stopping at the stops like normal and letting people on and off. I can only hope some of them did actually get to their desired destination and it was an unexpected extra tram. This is amazing. Um, How did this end though? Did it end badly for him? Well, eventually workers at the tram depot realised that the tram had been stolen and they managed to halt its onward journey by turning off the traction and the tram is now safely back in the depot. But like, why? Why would you do this? Was the guy drunk? Was he high or something? He was not drunk, no. And at the time of recording, we haven't heard the results of the blood test. So we don't know whether he was high on some other substance or not. But according to reports in the Polish media, he did it because his father is a tram driver and he wanted to step into his father's shoes and see what it was actually like to drive a tram for himself for once. <laughs> I mean, could he not organise some work experience? Maybe he's a bit too old, but might be a more legit way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, I find it quite a sweet reason. But um, unfortunately for him, the Polish law enforcement don't seem to be considering this sweetness when punishing him. 
Yeah, he's been detained for three months and could get a pretty hefty sentence, like in multiple years, according to the police services press spokesman. Wow. So, yeah, we'll see what's decided. But it does sound pretty hefty, especially considering that even though he didn't hold a tram license, he had enough knowledge to drive the tram without causing any damage to the vehicle or to the people who were getting on and off. There was no problem with traffic. He seems to have done like an okay job. (laughs) They should just give him a job. They maybe should. Someone's so enthusiastic that they'll take this risk. Anyway, he can only hope that the court system lets him off lightly, just as happened to two 23-year-old men in Braunschweig in Germany earlier this year. Their story actually has parallels to this one. They also took a tram for a ride and started picking up passengers. And the case against those two men was actually dropped by prosecutors because their tram had not been locked and the gate, again, was open. So it didn't officially count as burglary in Germany. Mm. They were also lucky that in Germany there's no official license required to drive a tram. They could still potentially get done for trespassing, but that doesn't seem to have happened yet from what I can find online. So, yeah, stealing trams is probably not a good idea, but also probably not worth years or even months in jail, in my humble opinion. I mean, clearly it is a major security breach, but given that no one was hurt, I'm a little bit charmed by the story of someone just having a dream of driving a tram and managing to do it. I know. It's nice. Although, obviously, people don't steal trams. No, please. Spending a few days with Katie and with all these inspiring young people in Brussels who care about what's going on beyond their nation's borders really relit that fire inside of me to fight for the survival of this independent European podcast baby of ours. So if you have any spare cash in your bank account and like what we are doing here, please consider donating to this show to keep it dropping in your podcast feed. Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast where you can donate as little as two euros a month to keep us going. We were away last week because we were busy telling bad jokes on stage at the European Parliament. Uh, And that means that we have a bumper crop of people to thank for supporting the show. Huge thanks go to the following people for sending a little bit of cash our way so that we can keep making the Europeans. These wonderful people are Daniela Makulavichuta, Julia Silat, Anna, Steve Fifield, Anna Elia, Lisa Vermeer and Bruno Vernet. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. It was a big week for us. We kind of took over the European Parliament this week. Yeah, we kind of did, but not in a like coup kind of way. No, we did not stage a coup d'etat in the European Parliament. It is good to clarify that. Um, It did really feel like a takeover, though. By the end of it, we were just casually hanging out in the parliament chamber like it was our living room. It's kind of surreal. Anyway, I said that we took it over, but this wasn't really our event, was it? No, it wasn't. Katie and I were invited to Brussels to host a two-day event called Level Up, which was a kind of boot camp for young activists from all over Europe. So student activists, climate activists, all kinds of people. And the idea was for them to attend workshops to hone their skills as activists and change makers. They learn about everything from how to organize in the metaverse Mm. to how to look after your mental health when campaigning. 
And a few times every day, they would enter the huge central parliamentary chamber of the European Parliament. It's called the Hemicycle. And they would find Katie and me up there on stage, moderating conversations, introducing talks from some amazing young people, and generally goofing around with our bad jokes. We had a lot of fun up there on stage and realized actually we quite like hosting, except mm. for the moment when there was a technical error and Katie um, decided that the best way to fill the awkward <laughs> gap was to try and persuade me to sing. And all 1,300 <laughs> people in the room started chanting, sing, sing, sing at me. I really didn't want to sing. Thanks, Katie. I'm really sorry about that. That's literally your worst nightmare. And I made it happen. Um, but when we weren't on stage, the two of us spent quite a lot of time wandering around and talking to all of these young activists, finding out where they were from, hearing about the kind of problems that they're trying to fix back home, what they think about Europe. Here is a little taste of what we heard while we were wandering around. I'm from Germany. I'm Sofia from Italy. I'm Andreas Cristiano from Romania. Hi, my name is Benjamin. I'm from Belgium. It says French on the badge, but Europe would be the correct answer. I live in Belgium, I'm from Italy, my mom is Austrian, so being European is a mentality. There is a high percentage of young people in unemployment, there is mental health issues at national level, and also young people that didn't have access to education for a long period of time at all. What does being European mean to you? Being European, wow. Being myself, so no matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're a straight, a gay person, this is being European for me. No matter which color is, is your skin, this is Europe, and I'm happy to be part of that. It was quite moving to meet so many young people who actually give a shit about trying to make the world a better place. It made me feel like all is not lost. Uh, so we did that, and we also interviewed someone pretty important, didn't we? Yes, probably the most high-profile person we've ever spoken to since we started making this podcast five years ago. We were joined by the president of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzler. An interesting politician. What did you make of her? Uh, to be quite honest, I wasn't expecting to like her as much as I did. Um, we disagree quite strongly about one political issue in particular. See previous episodes for details. So I wasn't really sure what to expect from her. And then we met her and she was this warm, funny, informal person. Uh, one of the first things she said was, I don't want to be called like Madam President. I want you to call me Roberta. Yeah, one of the things I found so interesting was to see how carefully choreographed everything is in advance of meeting a world leader like Roberta Metzler. Nothing is left to chance by the protocol team. And in the run up to her arrival, I found myself feeling a bit nervous that I was like going to sit in the wrong chair or drink from the wrong glass or something or call her by the wrong name, yeah. which is stupid, really, um, because as soon as she arrived, it was clear that she didn't really care much about those protocols. And she was just very relaxed. And then when we got on stage, I was sitting right behind her. So I could see the, the text of her speech, uh, the speech that her team had apparently stayed up till midnight writing the night before. And then she barely looked at it. I felt quite sorry for her speechwriting team because she stuck to the script at the beginning of it. And then she just veered off course and started saying whatever the hell she wanted. And I don't think I've seen many other politicians speak about Europe and speak to young people in such a convincing way. She's just a really impressive politician. It matters that younger people are involved. I used to hate being told what to do. When I was young, I used to hate being told you are the future. Please don't let people tell you that. You are now. You deal with yourself now. And you hold me accountable now. And my colleagues and your representatives, who you vote for, you hold them accountable today. 
And if you're not satisfied with what they're doing, you run yourselves. We were invited to host this event by the lovely people at the European Youth Forum. And you're going to hear an extract now of the interview that we did on stage with Metzola in front of all these young activists. She agreed to this interview about how she got her own start in politics. Metzola herself is someone who started pretty young. She first ran for a seat in the European Parliament when she was only 25. And we had a really interesting chat. Uh, But if you're expecting to hear super hard-hitting questions, that's not the kind of conversation it was. We'd love to have a more wide-ranging interview with her at some point, and maybe now she likes us, she'd be up for it. She said that she would be up for it, so it could happen, you never know. Um, But here it is. It's a slightly different interview segment today, recorded live at the European Parliament. Highlights of the conversation we had with Roberta Metzler. We interviewed her alongside the also very impressive President of the European Youth Forum, Celia Markula. Both of you sitting here between us today are proof that you can make a lot of change from a young age. And we're very curious to hear about the journeys that you've both been on. Roberta, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit more about your journey as a young activist in Malta. Like, was there a particular moment that made you decide, I want to be an activist? Yeah, I think it's the moment when my parents started to worry <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to continue my studies. I was a young uh, uh, law student at the time, and I started to feel a little bit frustrated about the fact that decisions were being taken that I didn't think were correct. And there was one specific decision that was taken that was to freeze our application to join the European Union. For most of you, this is something that you have taken for granted. You have been born at a time when your country was already in the European Union. But for my generation, That was not the case. And there were years of completely split societies as to whether this is to join or not to dominated the political scene. And therefore I said, what am I going to do about it? If there's one generation that would benefit from EU membership is mine. I was 16, 17 at the time. I said, I have to fight for this. So I started gathering friends of mine and I said, listen, are you interested in this? Yes, yeah, yes, of course I'm interested. What are you going to do about it? Ah, oh, we can't vote anyway. I said, yes, we can do something about it. We can tell our parents to vote. We can tell our grandparents to vote. I was at university involved in a particular student organization. And I said, let's organize campaigns. And we'd have the most ferocious arguments on campus in order for us to have the voice that young people could push the country over that 50% that was needed to say yes. In the end, it was 51.3% who said yes. And I think that we could take a little bit of credit. Celia, I wanted to ask you the same question. Was there a moment for you, a specific moment that triggered your interest in activism? I actually don't like the word activist. (laughs) Interesting, how come? For me, if I was a man of 40 years old doing the things I'm doing today, no one would call me an activist. I would simply be a person engaging in society. Because I happen to be young, all of a sudden I'm, I'm radical, I'm outside of the sort of usual sphere that people are used to seeing, and because I'm young, I'm an activist. What I consider myself is a person who's engaged in society. And the moment for me when I started getting involved in society or become an activist or whatever you want to call it, I think I'd have to go back when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I was, I just joined the Scouts in my local municipality where I, where I lived and I loved 
the outdoors. I wanted to make new friends. And that's where I kind of started just, you know, engaging in, in my local community and, and talking with other people. And when I was maybe 15, 16, scouting brought me to Brazil, to the World Scout Conference. We had people from all across the world for a week or two. I can't remember anymore, but we discussed all different kinds of things. We discussed human rights, we discussed democracy, we discussed sustainability, our planet. And that for me was a moment when I realized I'm, I'm actually part of something bigger. I'm, I'm part of a global community of people who, who fight for things, people who want to make a change. And, and that for me was, was a moment when I woke up. Look, there's a world around me and we all have a responsibility to, to fight for every human being to have the opportunities that I had grown up with. I had the possibility to go to school. I had the possibilities to have a community where I was accepted as who I am. And that was the moment for me when, when I grew up and realized I'm a person who makes a difference. Now, I would like to ask Ben at the back to put up a photo on the screen of a young Roberta Metzler. <laughs> there she is. This is a photo of you back in your early days in politics. Uh, I was wondering, I wanted to do a bit of, uh, this is something that RuPaul does in RuPaul's Drag Race. It's probably the first time RuPaul's Drag Race has been mentioned in the European Parliament. Um, and he, he yeah. <laughs> RuPaul, he asks his contestants, if you look back at your younger self, what advice would you give to a young Roberta? Are you quoting RuPaul to me? I'm impressed. Okay. Well, I would wear less eyeliner. Where is the photo? And I would pluck my eyebrows a little bit less. But that was my first election, I think. Maybe 2004. No, maybe 2009. My advice would be, I used to hold on to that microphone, maybe a little bit like I'm doing now, for dear life, because I was so scared to speak in public. Uh, and that would stop me from shaking, you know, at the time. It was very, very, very difficult to learn, to sort of get over that immediate sort of hurdle of not being afraid to say what you think and believe in. The worst thing you could do is to try to blend in by saying exactly the same thing like everybody else. My advice would have been not to be as afraid as I was and to elbow my way into a room when it was practically impossible to enter. We've got European elections coming up in 2024. One way that people can engage is by running in those elections. Um, but uh, if people aren't running in the elections, how can they engage in them? I remain a little bit concerned about the fact that we don't explain enough what happens in this room that matters to everybody. Sometimes we're told, oh, those are boring big, big words. No, they're not. No, they're not. Today we are facing a fundamental challenge. I got elected on the 18th of January of this year. If anyone had told me five weeks later that we would have a war on our continent and that democracy and rule of law and equality and peace and freedom are all going to be put into question within a day, 
across the globe and that there's no one else but Europe to save that, I would not have believed. If somebody had told me that in a year that should have been after two hard years must have been for you more if you were studying away from campus, of what should have been a year of economic growth, a year of opportunity, a year of, of coming back, is now a year also where people are struggling to pay their bills, where youth unemployment is up, where inflation is exploding, interest rates are high, very difficult to buy your own house, start your own business unless you have help. I would ask you to also talk about that because that is why having democracy matters and the risk is that where you're sitting here, I need to find majorities in this house and I need to find constructive pro-European majorities. We have seen unity, unprecedented unity on, on Ukraine. We voted overwhelmingly for Ukraine and Moldova to become candidate countries of the European Union. We push more on uh, Western Balkans, access to Schengen for Croatia, Romania and Bulgaria. Huge issues for young people from those countries. How many of you are from Romania, Bulgaria and Croatia? Many of you. Look at that. That's why we are pushing to extend our roaming to Ukraine and Moldova. That's why we are managing to uncouple ourselves from Russian gas. That's why we are investing more in renewables so that we are less dependent on fossil fuels. That's what we do in this house. That's why Europe matters. If you don't vote, those who want to destroy the project will fill this house. Please don't allow that to happen. I have no doubt that you will. Thanks. Celia, you are the president of the European Youth Forum. It is the biggest platform of youth organizations in Europe. I'm not going to do that thing where I ask you to speak for an entire generation, but you do talk to a lot of young people all the time. So can I ask you, what do you think young people want from this election? When I was involved in the Conference on the Future of Europe, which is bringing citizens from all across this, this continent together and, and discussing what the future of Europe should look like, the number one thing that young people that we engage with, the number one thing they want to see in the future of Europe to be tackled as a challenge was issues related to employment. We are a generation who struggles a lot when it comes to trying to land on that first job. We don't dream about buying our first house. That, I don't know if I can ever do that in my lifetime. That's where we are as a generation right now, looking at the world, looking at the uncertainties that we're in. There's a war going on. There's a pandemic still kind of roaming around us, although it, it sometimes feels like we're maybe on the other side of the lockdowns. Fingers crossed. We don't know. The uncertainty of that is big. And the number one thing that uh, the young people we engaged with when discussing what do we want the future of Europe to look like is a future where we can have decent jobs, where we can actually get paid for the work that we do. We don't, I don't know, get an unpaid internship where you, know, you do all the work, you provide a lot of value to a company or, or, or someone, and at the end of the day, you don't get that paycheck. And that's something we would like to see fixed. I think it's fair to say that Metzler's speech went down pretty well in the room. Lots of people seemed very fired up by it. And actually, it's one of the things we asked a lot of the young activists about as we were walking around. It's an amazing uh, time here in the European Parliament. 
I'm still uh, energized by the, the speech of Metzler yesterday. It was so nice to uh, see her with uh, blue jeans inside of Amy's cycle. Did you guys hear President Metzler speaking this morning? Yes. And what did you think about her vision for Europe and uh, her vision for the, the youth of Europe? We are really different political-wise. I mean, we have really different political opinions. I really appreciate what she's doing in the European Parliament. She wanted to inspire us, you know, to be more active and everything. At the same time, I have some doubts on the, the mentality, like saying, if you want to do it, you can do it. I don't believe in that. So saying you should be heard, you should like be loud, don't be afraid of politicians. Well, yeah, but you have to have the chance to get there and to talk to politicians. And nobody, like not all of us had the, 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 the opportunity. This just like words, you know, and we keep hearing these words for 20 years now, right? Especially from the boomers generation. We keep hearing that, like, be loud, don't be afraid. Yeah, whatever, I'm doing it. <laughs> but I still have internship of 400 years, uh, euros per month. So what are we talking about here? No, just it's not that easy to, to run for elections. So you also need support from the political parties in, in your countries to be able to put uh, young people in the front, not just your personal will, but it's a systemic issue. I think those points about all the structural things that get in the way of young people being better represented in politics are really worth thinking about. Inspiring as it was to hear so much, you know, you can do it, get out there young people, go run for election kind of stuff over the weekend. There was this crazy fact that we heard a couple of times while we were there, which is that there are as many MEPs aged under 30 as there are MEPs called Martin. Isn't that crazy? It is a bit crazy. But yeah, I agree. It was quite inspiring to see how all these young people, not just from Metzler, but from the event in general, seemed really inspired to take action and in many cases to stand for office. Yeah, I was quite impressed by that. We're going to post some pictures of this event on our Instagram page so you can get an idea of what we were up to. You can find us there at Europeans Podcast. What have you been enjoying this week? I listened uh, on the train on the way to Brussels to a really interesting podcast conversation between two of Europe's most fascinating humans, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg and Icelandic musician Björk. That's a great combo. It is, isn't it? They were brought together by Kate Mossman from the New Statesman magazine. And it was so fun listening into this conversation between two such original thinkers. It was actually the first time they'd ever spoken, despite having loosely collaborated before during Bjork's 2019 Cornucopia tour. And it's really touching that Bjork is really rather starstruck by Greta and yeah. just generally impressed and inspired by her, having just read her book. Does it go both ways? Was Greta also starstruck by Bjork? Uh, good question. Greta is very sweet about Björk, but I don't know how much of a fan of Björk's music she is, which is of course fine. Greta does say she listened to Björk's latest album, Fossora, that very morning. So she did prepare for the interview, but um, it was difficult to tell whether it was, if it was like a genuine interest in her music. Greta was a bit more cool about the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, they talk about everything from the failure of politicians in dealing with the existential problems we are facing now to what it's like being such huge celebrities in their respective countries. And it turns out that they're both, fortunately, rather left alone by people in their home countries and can live relatively free, normal lives despite being such celebrities. So 
Yeah, well done, Iceland and Sweden, for leaving your celebrities alone. You can listen to the interview on the New Statesman's World Review podcast. We'll post a link in the show notes. What have you been enjoying, Katie? Well, I'm going to recommend a podcast that I listened to on the train home from seeing you. And that is an episode of Adam Buxton's podcast. It's a British interview podcast. And it's one of those shows that I kind of dip in and out of sometimes. And this episode was with the Irish novelist Marion Keyes. I'm not really familiar with Marion's books. And to be honest, I just put this podcast on to have something to nap to on the train. But I ended up completely riveted and charmed by this interview. I didn't go to sleep. Uh, It's a really wide ranging conversation. It covers everything from Marion's struggle with alcoholism and depression to making friends later in life and languages. I think Irish people speak and probably write according to the rhythms of an older language. A lot of the metaphors are different, more colourful and... Sort of playful, isn't it? It is more playful. It's funny, I was reading somebody in the last few days talking about, you know, the, the relationship between Ukrainian and Russian and that, you know, Ukrainian is very similar to Russian, but it is so different in that it is much more lyrical. It's much more inventive. It's more colourful. It's more joyful. And that's how I feel Irish people are with words, with English. I really have that Irish thing of why use one word when 4,000 will do. You know, the more, the merrier. I just think words are beautiful. And, and why not throw in three or four more if they're, <laughs> if they're, if they're entertaining and lovely? Yeah. I don't know if it's just because I was feeling a bit hungover and vulnerable because we went out the night before. But I really loved this conversation. I found it really uplifting and beautiful. So I wanted to recommend it to you. Sounds nice. It's time for a happy ending to close the show. And I guess some of our regular listeners will probably have noticed over the years that lots of my happy endings can be categorized into pretty distinct themes of happy stories. I find when scouring the European interweb, we have stories about animals, lots of stories about people finding unexpected treasures in their homes and heartwarming stories of people doing extraordinary things for others. And I often also share stories of amazing scientific discoveries. But this week's story sits in a completely unique category of happy endings. It is a story about someone making a mistake, a mistake that is, frankly, pretty inconsequential, but a mistake that's gone unnoticed for a very long time. And it made me smile. I'm talking about the fact that a German curator has just recently realized that a painting by the Dutch artist Mondrian has been hanging upside down for decades in the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen Museum. I saw the headlines about this. Yeah, it's such a nice story. And it was discovered by this curator, Suzanne Mayabuza, who says the work which has been hanging in the museum since the 80s has been upside down all that time. And actually, it seems like it was hanging upside down since it was first hung in MoMA in New York in the 1940s, soon after Mondrian's death. But how does she even know that it was upside down? Because they just look like squares, don't they? Yeah. I'm I'm sounding like a real pleb for saying that. (laughs) No, it is. You're right. It's not a particularly figurative painting. It's a typical Mondrian painting with colourful lines on a white background. So it makes sense that it wasn't like totally clear which way around it should be, especially seeing as Mondrian died before signing it. 
My abuser has two main pieces of evidence as to why it's been upside down all this time. Firstly, because there's another painting with almost the same name called New York City. This one's called New York City One. And in that painting, it is known that Mondrian expected the thicker lines to be at the top of the painting, probably to represent the sky. This painting has been hung all this time with the thicker lines at the bottom. So that was the first red flag that Susanna noticed. And then the hunch was confirmed when a photo was found of the painting when it was still in Mondrian's studio shortly after he died. And in this photo, the thick lines are indeed at the top of the painting. So my abuser must be right. Oh, no. I'm looking at it now. It doesn't really look like New York City to me. Am I missing something? (laughs) Yes, of course you are. You need to work on your imagination. Uh, New York City is like a grid city, right? That's true. With very straight road lines. So I think it just kind of makes sense. But the thing that I love about this story even more is that they're not going to turn it around. Oh, they're going to leave it the wrong way up. Yes, which actually is maybe for quite sad reasons, because um, they think that if they turn it around, then the lines could fall off the canvas because they're already a little bit loose. And if they let gravity have its way in the other direction, then it could be damaged beyond repair. But still, I love this story and I thought it would be a happy way to close the show. That is it for this week. Next week, we have a great interview for those of you who feel like there just aren't enough hours in the day, which I suspect is a lot of you. Uh, We're going to be talking about time poverty and how one city, Barcelona, is trying to fight time poverty. It's a really fascinating conversation. Do not miss it. In the meantime, you can find the aforementioned video of us using a pancake machine in Brussels on our Instagram. It was a very exciting moment. We're there at Europeans Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Europeans Pod. Thank you to Katie Lee for producing this episode and to Wojciech for mixing and mastering and also to Wojciech for helping with me with the Polish tram story because there was like nothing written about it in English. Thank you also to Katz Laszlo, our other producer, who's just been representing us in Potsdam at Pre-Europa, where we were nominated for a very exciting prize. We didn't win, but hey, it's the taking part that counts. It was amazing just to be there, frankly, given that it's this big-ass prize and we're a very little operation. We were there on behalf of us and Are We Europe? with whom we have been making this very beautiful series, This Is What A Generation Sounds Like. And actually, All Europe have just released the first chapter of the latest stunning visual episode in the series, Mohammed. It's a really, really beautiful thing to watch. Uh, we will post a link to that in the show notes. See you next week, everyone. Cześć!